But don't worry, you won't get lost. Because today we find ourselves in another portion of John's gospel where certain themes are repeated. And so if you've been with us through the gospel of John, the gospel of John is not like any of the letters that Paul writes. Paul's letters speak more to a Western way of thinking and logical reasoning. When you read Paul's letters, it's here's my argument, here's three reasons to support my argument, and, and he goes forth. Here's an illustration. He even divides his epistles very clearly, like Romans. Chapters 1 through uh, 12 is, is doctrinal. Uh, chapters 13 to, uh, to the end is practical, and that's how Paul writes. John is not so. John speaks like an Easterner. If you ever talk to people from Eastern culture, and, and you know that they tell stories and they go in circles. They go in circles. And you're like, why are you repeating yourself? Finally, in the, in the end, they're like, here's the argument. It's not even an argument. Right? Here's the reveal. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the son of God. Um, and so what you see in John, if you study John, is that he makes a point, and then he does something else. And he comes back to the same point, but he shows you a little more. Then he comes back to the same point, he shows you a little more. And that's really difficult then to make a clear outline, right, if, if you go through John. But that's why once again today, you're going to see once again, Jesus is the light of the world. Once again, he's dealing with this concept of spiritual light versus spiritual darkness. And you've seen Jesus battling with the Jewish leaders, and he makes the point that those who come to him are spiritually blind, but then they're given sight, yet the religious leaders of Israel think they can see, but they're really spiritually blind. They're, they're in the darkness, not in the light, because they reject Jesus, who is the light. So, one, so you'll see these things, these themes over and over again. All right, so that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. So instead of being ultimately repetitive, because we are speaking to a Western culture here, is that what I'm going to do is, for this week and next week, we're going to go into this really long passage about Jesus healing the blind man. But what I want to do is draw out some applied theology. And so I, I will be speaking on things that are not in the text, but when you abstract the truth from the text, because we repeated some of these themes, rather than going deep into that theme, I'll unfold it for you in a way where it speaks to some things in your life. And there's other parts where we'll just be explaining the historical context of the passage. Okay, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump right in. Father, we come before you this morning, and we are thankful for your word. We're thankful once again that we're able to take the Lord's Supper. Lord, when we receive that bread, we are reminded of your body uh, being given for us. When we drink the cup, we're reminded of the blood of the new covenant where we have forgiveness of sin because we take shelter under the blood of the Lamb of God. And Father, now as we go to the Word, we pray, Lord, that Christ will be magnified. More than anything, Lord, as we go through the narrative, I pray that you would speak to us specifically. Help the Word of God to take flesh in our individual hearts so that we would be more like Jesus, help us to see. Speak, O oh Lord, give us eyes to see, just like you gave to the blind man, but give us spiritual eyes to see that you are the Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
I've entitled today's message, Born to See God, Part 1. Next week is Part 2, Born to See God, Part 1. If you have God's Word, meet me now in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. There are four points this morning. Uh, These points are simply outlining for you the flow of the narrative. So Born to See God, Part 1. John chapter 9. The first thing we see, the first movement in the text, point number one, is simply the question. The question. Jesus' disciples asked Jesus a question. A very simple question. But from this question, again, there's applied theology that speaks to us in our day. So hope you're there. John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. The question. As he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. That's the key, blind from birth. Verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Twice. John wants you to see that this man was blind from birth. He was not blind because of warfare. Oftentimes, soldiers back then, they would go to war and they would be blinded or partially blinded because of warfare. You can be in an accident and turn blind. You can get a disease that blinds you. But it's very clear that this man was blind from birth. Now this question about why a man was blind from birth, put more generally, is the very same question that can be applied to why are people born with disabilities? Is God good? Why are certain babies born with Down syndrome? Is God good? And where does the value of that child come from then? Is it because the parents were sinful? Is that why a child would be born with disabilities? Is it because that child somehow sinned in the womb? Do we believe? We don't. But do we believe certain religions in incarnation? Where you lived a former life and you sinned, so you're reborn into a new life but with disabilities. Now you can see what I mean. A very simple question speaks to very real issues that we face today in our counseling, in our family ministry, even at the foot of the Supreme Court. Where does the value of a child come from? You see... What the disciples are asking is they're asking a question about generational curses. But a generational curse is different from a generational consequence. So let's put things on the table. If you have a parent who has given themselves over to a life of drug abuse and that mother becomes pregnant, yes, that child might be born with some consequences of a generational sin. That's very different from a generational curse. The idea of a generational curse is that God himself punishes a child because of the sin of their parents. You see, so there's a difference between a generational curse and a generational consequence. But even a generational consequence, beloved, you tell me, preach to me this morning, what's the answer? Even if there's a consequence, You drink way more than you should. You get into a reckless car accident and you become blind. That is a consequence of sin. 
a mother, like I mentioned, does something she shouldn't, and the child is born as a consequence of sin, what is the answer? What is the answer that makes the heart whole and gives spiritual life even if there's physical disability? What is the answer that shows you that there's more to this life, that there's a resurrected life? What is the answer that allows you to forgive? What is the answer that, that you did nothing wrong? You were driving along the side of the road or along the, on the road, and someone who is drunk hits you, and you become blind. What is the answer that leads to healing and forgiveness? What is the answer? The answer for physical disability, the answer for the consequence to sin as well, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only Christ. It's only Christ that brings healing. You see, when someone is born blind, though, most of us don't naturally connect their blindness to generational sin. So why does Jesus' disciples make such a connection? Because divine consequence for generational sin was a common assumption of Jesus' day. You might not think this, because you're thinking that these Jews have a certain monotheistic worldview, which they do, and they should understand how God operates, yet, yet even in the book of Job, the book of Job gives us the classic example where you have this, these unexpected measures of disaster, calamity. When, when unexpected calamity fell upon Job, his friends could only conclude that, Job, you must have sinned. You must have sinned. Job must have done something evil in the sight of God. Yet we know through the book of Job that his friends were dead wrong. You see, divine punishment somehow became a framework for justifying suffering. Even in this context, I read a commentary where it said Jews of Jesus' day believed that through sexual sin, if a mother got gonorrhea, and somehow the bleeding would, would, would blind the child that's in the womb. And so, and so they believed in generational curses and generational punishment that's unfairly put upon a child, that God would punish the mother through this way. No, no, the mother has sinned, and there's some consequences, but you see, there's a difference between platform versus punishment. Write that down. Platform versus punishment. There's a difference between divine punishment versus divine platform. We often miss the point, until you get to the New Testament, that God gives us physical disease and physical weakness as a means to display his power and his glory and his grace. In fact, physical weakness is to cultivate spiritual fortitude. Physical problems are not a problem to God at times, but a platform for God's glory to be displayed through his creatures. Now, Jesus' disciples are not entirely wrong about their worldview. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Let me show you, we know that they're wrong. But let me show you what the disciples get right. And in doing so, explain the passage as well. Where did the disciples get it right? First, the disciples, they believe in God. The idea that God is the creator is correct. And the idea that God is sovereign and in control over the nature of our birth is correct. The idea that sin exists and the reason for all disease and disability being traced back to the fall of man, that is correct. That is correct. All physical death, all physical disease, all physical disability is 
a result of sin entering the world and the fallen nature of man. That is correct. Okay? And the idea that God is the creator and God is not only sovereign over creation, but God is sovereign over how we are born. Not only that we are born, but how we are born. So if someone is born with a certain disability, that that is God given and God ordained for his good purposes, that is correct. But the fact that God punishes people by giving disability, that is theologically incorrect. But the disciples, they don't hold to a secular worldview. So at least they get it that part right because the secular worldview believes the man was born this man they would say this man was born blind by the by evolution through evolution by chance just by chance survival of the fittest somehow this man was born less valuable less functionable why because of natural evolution at least the disciples trace it back to god you see, in the process of human evolution from a secular viewpoint, some are less evolved and developed by mere chance. But what does that tell you about a value of a person? The theory of evolution means a person's value is based on their functionality by chance, not by design. The reason why a person or a fetus with any type of congenital sensory birth defect the reason why there's value placed upon a person, regardless of ability or functionality, is because we believe that the image of God is stamped upon every creature. Every creature, every human being that is born, creature being a human, not animals, okay? But every human being has the image of God, is born with the image of God, and it is God who gives value to a fetus and to a child. The value of a person comes from God. And so if someone is born with disabilities, we can't see it on our side of heaven, but God sees immense value in that child and that person. And there are going to be gifts and abilities and things that God gives to a man who is blind that we would never see in our lifetime because we take for granted our sight. There are going to be things revealed in heaven where we don't understand how God is fair and he's going to show us the great rewards that he gives those who are born with disability that you and I who don't have disability in that same way would never experience in heaven. We'll all be happy in heaven, but there will be some who will experience a greater sense of glory and enjoyment. And I've said this before, when you have legs and you get to heaven, it's great. In your resurrected body, when you don't have legs or you lose your legs and you receive your resurrected body, you are going to rejoice differently in a supernatural way in heaven. God has his purposes, whether he heals in this lifetime or not. But the value of a person comes from God and, and how they are born. And that the, the disciples at least understand. The second thing they get right is, and so that's one category of how a person is born, is sin. They are right that sin exists. And along those lines, they are right that physical disability at birth is a result of sin, but again, not punishment. Where do they get things wrong? Where, what do, do Jesus' disciples get wrong? The disciples are wrong in seeing, as I mentioned, this man's blindness as a punishment for sin. Hear me very clearly. God is in his good and mysterious plan. He ordains for some to be born with congenital sensory birth defects. And so... We have to see the value of a person in not only that they are born, but how they are born. There's value. This is not a sermon on abortion. 
Okay, that's not what this passage is talking about. If you're wondering if I am pro-life, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So I am. Even in that message, Jesus saying, before Abraham was ever conceived or created, God existed. God is the I am that made I am Abraham and I am of Abraham possible. And so to eliminate a child in the womb due, due to pre-birth discoveries reflects evolution. This child is not going to survive in the world of the fittest. Quality of life is going to be low. Doctors recommend abort. That is an assault against the creator. Because if this man's mother could somehow be told back then, your child is going to be born blind, she might have been presented with the very same options that we see problematic in our world today. And so let me just say that once. Okay, A person's value is not based on their functionality. Unlike the world's values, a person's value is based on the fact that they're created in the image of God. And so I don't ever want anybody in our church, not only abortion, but to see anyone who is less functional as less valuable. Function does not determine value. But in our world, if someone is more athletic, more good-looking, smarter, better, we pay them more, we make them celebrities. When people are less functional, we convey less value by how we pay them, how we view them, how we treat them. God will deal with our sin when we get to heaven, and he will deal with the evil in this world, and he will deal with murder in the womb. But that's not our sermon today, so I, I, I got to move to point number two. I, I, I was telling, uh, I, was, I was on the airplane, Gabe and Kevin are next to me, Kevin and Gabe are next to me, I said, man, it's going to be 11.55, and I'm preaching this pro-life sermon, you know, and, and I got I to gotta abstain. So second, we, we, we move to the answer, we move to the answer. Okay, the answer. So first we see the question. Here's Jesus' answer. And this one's quick. Verse 3. Jesus said, Jesus answered, It was not this man, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why. Okay, that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why he was blind. Because God is completely sovereign. God is completely sovereign over this man's life. You see, Jesus' answer is, this man is blind. The cause of his blindness was not sin, but sovereignty. The cause of his blindness was not because anybody sinned, but because of the sovereignty of God in his life. Verse 3 makes a powerful point. Blindness is not a problem, but blindness presents an avenue to display God's glory. The man is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What if God never heals a person of blindness? The glory of God is displayed in this person when they come to Christ, even when they don't see. They simply hear the word of God, or somehow they understand the word of God, and one day they will see. The man was born blind by divine design. Very simple. Verse 4 now. Notice what Jesus says, because Jesus is going to heal this man, and we know that already. Verse 4, he says, we must work the works of him, that's God. We must work the works of him who sent me, God the Father sent Jesus, while it is day. Look at these symbols, day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
So I mentioned how John, he kind of repeats these themes, and he communicates through symbol. He communicates through symbol. And the more you read John, the more you understand the various symbols. So when you put it together, he's talking about the works of him. He's going to heal this man. So God has sent Jesus Christ as the Messiah to perform various works to display the works of God. And while Jesus is there, he is the light of the world. So there's this concept of daytime. All things created through Christ. When he is there, he's the light of the world. And so it's almost like it's daytime. But night is coming. But night's always going to come. So he's not talking about nighttime per se. He's talking about there's going to be a time, a moment of spiritual darkness that's coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, it's daytime. When I go, it's going to be dark. Well, what is he talking about? What's he talking about? Well, you know what daytime is. What's night? Night is coming. John 13, 30. I don't have it up for you. You can turn there. I'll simply read it to you. It's only one verse. The moment Judas takes the morsel of bread from Jesus and goes out to betray Jesus, John gives you a signal. He gives you a symbol. Okay, and this is what John 13, 30 says. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Judas immediately, it says immediately, he went out, it was night. And so that tells you that, that night means Jesus is right now daytime. He's ministering among his apostles. He's healing people. He's doing his work. He's preaching the word of God. The Pharisees are rejecting him. They're going to kill him. And one of his, his own disciples going to betray him when jesus is on the cross and when he dies all of his disciples are scattered and hiding and that is night jesus is being crucified night spiritual darkness great spiritual darkness night is coming where no one can work what does that mean well jesus is the one working on the cross but his disciples they aren't doing the works of god they're hiding but we know that in the very same book John 14, verse 12. John 14, verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. That's not just his disciples, but you and I as well. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So you put that together, right? Right here in John, Jesus says, Disciples are with him. Jesus is there, alive, working his earthly ministry, daytime. Jesus goes to the cross because he's been, been betrayed, nighttime. Then Easter Sunday, a new day. And you enter into that new day because the work is done. The gospel is complete. The death and resurrection, it's complete. Now there's a message to proclaim. And come Pentecost, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, and we all receive the Holy Spirit, and now we continue to do the work that Jesus called us to do, because we are in a new day. We are in the day of Christ Jesus. So can you see what God is doing? There's almost a, a miniature that you're going to see in the healing of the blind man. In the healing of the blind man, you see a miniature of the gospel, and, and you really got to think deep deeply to understand this, is that he's actually physically blind, but that speaks towards a spiritual reality that he's physically blind, but that physical blindness represents spiritual blindness, like the Jewish leaders. 
And when Jesus opens his eyes, he comes into light. He sees, but not only that, you'll see next week that he actually comes to believe in Jesus Christ. And he confesses Christ as Lord and Messiah. And so he actually comes into the light. And so the entire time, even though he's in the daytime, he can't see. Until Jesus touches him, and then he can see. And then, and then he goes and does the work by proclaiming, Jesus is the one who healed me. And he becomes a follower of Christ. That's a miniature of the gospel, that we were all born, whether you can physically see or not, we were all born spiritually blind. But once Jesus touched us through the Spirit, we are saved by his death and resurrection. Now we are sent out to preach to a world of spiritual darkness because our eyes have been opened to the truth. That's a miniature of the gospel in this blind man. Now, spiritual blindness was a major theme in the Old Testament, and I'll come to that next week, where in the Old Testament, blindness was more than physical. It was uh, already being used as a, to illustrate spiritual failure, and I'll come to that next week. So what we've seen is two points so far. We've seen the question, and then we've seen Jesus' answer. The question, was this man born blind because he sinned or because his, his parents sinned? No. The answer, he was born blind by the sovereign plan of God because God wanted to work his glory and his majesty through, through this man. That leads to point number three, which is the miracle. So the miracle in verses 6 to 7 is the actual execution of the healing. So we see the miracle. Look with me now in verse 6, starting in verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Mama would never allow me to do what Jesus did. I would get, I would get the, the Chinese duster across my leg <laughs> or a slipper across the face, right? Can you, can you imagine that? But, but what's, just think about what Jesus is doing. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. You guys know that song, Power in the Blood? There's Power in the Blood. It's a little bit honky-dory. We don't play it too much. There's Power in the Blood. I think that's the words, right? I'm not a musician. There's Power in the Mud. <laughs> There's Power in the Mud. Blood is unclean. Blood is unclean. Bloodshed is required for atonement because it signifies the death of a, an animal or a substitute sacrifice. But blood is unclean. If you're bleeding, you are unclean in Jewish rituals. Spit, saliva, is unclean. Jesus takes what is unclean to make clean, to anoint, to purify Jesus is doing a recreation. He takes what has been unclean and he uses it to purify sins. He reverses everything. He reverses everything. Why does he take mud? Uh, there's different views out there. But one view is that theologically, in Genesis 2-7, it says man was made out of dust. And so Jesus goes into this mud. He spits on it, makes it into a mud ball or clay, packs it on the guy's eye. And heals him in a form of recreation. I don't agree. I don't disagree with John Calvin much. But John Calvin does have a weird commentary on this. He says that 
the reason why Jesus spit in the mud and, and uh, wrapped it into clay and put it on the guy's eyes was to intensify his blindness so that the healing would be intensified. A little bit much, but I love John Calvin on most everything. Different scholars have different viewpoints. We don't exactly know why Jesus, why Jesus would, would spit on the ground uh, to make mud out of his saliva. We definitely can't do that post-pandemic. If soup plantation can't open, I don't know how we can spit on the mud. And, if you ask me for prayer, would you be offended if I did that? <laughs> we can't even take the communion, like, past the, you know, we're all touching the, the bread, right, passing it around. So Jesus, he, he does break the cultural custom. The other thing that you'll see, but I feel like it's overkill in the book of John, is that Jesus is doing this on the Sabbath. So obviously he's making something on the Sabbath. He's recreating. And the Pharisees are going to judge him for that too. They're going to judge him for that. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this. And, and, and he, so Jesus said to him, to this man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And look at what John does. He puts a parenthetical statement, which means sent. Gives you a symbol. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So he was blind. Jesus sent him to the pool to wash. I've spit on the ground. That's not clean. Mud is dirty. I'm going to put what's unclean on you. Anoint your eyes. But Jesus makes what's unclean clean. He says, go wash now in this pool of Siloam. What's this pool? The pool of Siloam, I won't get too much into it. But basically, it, water is being sent from one through from one body of water down to this pool. And so they, they called this pool, sent. Jesus sends him to wash, and he comes back seeing. He returns seeing. And so John wants you to see very clearly that Jesus is the sent one. He is the Messiah. He's the Messiah that comes and gives sight to the, to the blind. He brings healing. He's the sent one. And so you see all kinds of imagery there for you. And so that's what happens. This man is made, is made clean in terms of healing. And later, next week, you will see that he's also made clean spiritually. But this leads us to our fourth point. Right? So, so three things happen. You see the question. You see Jesus' answer. You see the miracle. And you see the first interrogation. First interrogation. The neighbors who saw this man grow up, they knew he was blind. They knew he was blind. These are his neighbors. These aren't people from outside. They don't believe the miracle. They, it, it takes them a moment for them to really believe that a miracle has happened. I want you to see the first interrogation. And, and what you see next is like an investigation. You know how if someone gets saved... Or maybe you're a seeker and you're trying to investigate the miracle of the resurrection, so you're asking questions. That's what you kind of see. You know, he's interrogated first by his neighbors, then next week you'll see the Pharisees, round one. And then the Pharisees then interrogate his family, and then they come and interrogate him again, and so forth. But the first one, all we have time for today, is the first interrogation. That's what happens in verses 8 to 12. The people in this man's immediate community express confusion over his healing. So they interrogate the man, asking him, how did you get 
healed? That's a good question. We've always known you to be blind, and because you're blind, you've been a beggar. You can't work. You've been a beggar. How is it now that you've been healed? And so, verses 8 to 12, let me read it to you. The neighbors, the neighbors, and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. It's obviously him. It looks like him. Others said, no, but he is like him. Is that not what they said about Jesus? Adding in some insight. Is that Jesus? I don't know, he's different. He's in resurrected form, but it's obviously him. That can't be him. He's different. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, verse 11, the man, because he hasn't met Jesus yet, in terms of he hasn't seen Jesus with his eyes yet. The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Again, this man's been blind. He's never seen Jesus with his eyes. He's never seen a man with his eyes. He's never seen people with his eyes. He was born blind. And so the first person who touches him is Jesus. And so when when they're like, who healed you? He knows about Jesus. Beloved, if you believe in Jesus, have you guys seen Jesus of Nazareth in, in, in physical form? How many of you have seen Jesus? We haven't, but we've heard and we believe that Jesus, God has spoken to us through his word and through the Holy Spirit, but we haven't seen Jesus. We haven't seen Jesus. But look how these witnesses, these witnesses, these first line of witnesses, they obviously, they see a change in his life. I mentioned earlier that that's how some people viewed Christ post-resurrection. And this man is going to be in Christ. And so they, they obviously see that he looks like the same man, but there's seriously a change. A change like he's been touched by God, but he has been touched by God, but they don't know that. Beloved, let's look at application. Let's look at application. Just like the formerly blind man, I'm not talking about people who don't know us, but people who know us, our family members, our neighbors, when our non-Christian friends look at us, our classmates, our coworkers, what happens? Do they ask you, you're the same person, you kind of look like it, what on earth happened to you? You used to be angry, bitter, and always negative. Some of you are like, oh, no, I'm still that way. <laughs> no, 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 there's, yeah, yeah, we, we have moments, but, but Jesus is our hope. And, and your neighbor, your coworker, someone's close to you, said, what happened to you? You obviously look the same, but there's a change in you. It's pretty evident that some miracle happened to you. Uh, how? What happened? Do our friends, do our family members look at us and see a spiritual change? See a spiritual change in our lives. 
when Jesus gives us spiritual sight, do others see? Because two things should be evident when we receive spiritual sight. First is our spiritual salvation should be evident to us. This man said, yes, I am he. He didn't say, that's my twin brother that was blind. You should be very well aware of a conversion that happened in your life. That yes, I am still fill in the blank. I am still Hanley Lou. But Jesus has opened my eyes to the sin in my life. I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect yet. But he has changed me and he's changing me each and every day. And yes, I'm a different person because I've been touched by God. I've been changed by God. You should have a testimony of your own conversion. But second thing is that when people who really know you look at you, they should see a change in your life. And that change may happen over a lifetime. And the encouraging part is next week, I'm going to show you the journey. Now, this is just one chapter, but you can look at the journey of the blind man's life when he goes from, I don't really know what happened to me. I just listened to him and he healed me to him defending Jesus Christ against the religious establishment. So even though this is one account, you can put the entire Christian life into this account. You know, a lot of times when you and I get saved, we're like, I don't really know. I just, sorry about that. These things are so good, you know, it picks up little snorts and stuff like that. I, I try not to snort because I grew up in the generation where there was Pee Wee Herman. You know, some of you know, he, he used to snort when he laughs. Don't look him up. Anyway. So, so this, this man, he was, he, was, he was touched by God, and he didn't really understand what happened. For a lot of you, when you first get saved, you don't know all your theology. All you know that something has happened to you, and you know that it was Jesus. That's all you know. Something has happened to me, and I know that it was Jesus. I know it wasn't me. Then as you learn more about Jesus, you realize this man was, was, truly is the Son of God. And then you're able to defend him eventually. See, you learn over time more about Jesus. And, and then you say, God, I'm, I'm going to follow you. So there's a process in this man's life. Let me give you the big idea and land the plane. The big idea this morning is that Christ restores physical sight to some but spiritual sight to all who trust him as Messiah. Christ restores physical sight to some, which means some people are actually healed of blindness. There are stories of people like this coming to sight. Some of you might have experienced healing from cancer, others not. But spiritually, all of us are offered healing from spiritual darkness. But spiritual sight is offered to all who will trust in him. And if we trust in him as Messiah, we will receive spiritual healing. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you're still in spiritual darkness, let me present the gospel before you. Jesus Christ, he came 2,000 years ago. He came to live a perfect life and to die a perfect death in our place. You and I, we were born into sin. We were born as sinners. And we deserve to be on that cross. We deserve to pay for our sin. But instead, Jesus Christ took our 
place on the cross as our substitute. He made atonement for our sins, and he satisfied the wrath of God for us. He bore the judgment of God. And every sin that we would ever commit in our sinful nature, the, the, the declaration of God's judgment upon us, that death sentence was transferred onto Christ. And the perfect righteousness and holiness of God was transferred onto us. There was a great exchange. So that now, if you trust in Christ, and if you confess your sin and your need for him, and if you trust that he's not just your Savior, but he is the Lord, he is the Son of God, he will forgive you. And you will be saved. And throughout your life, he will continue to develop and cultivate repentance in you, and you will be sanctified. And that's salvation. And when you pass away, you will not enter into judgment, but you will enter into eternal life with God. And if you don't have security, if you don't have Christ, you can have Christ now. I can see it for some of you. The, the, the eyes, the spiritual eyes are being opened. Some of you, maybe you grew up in church. And Jesus was your parents' Jesus, but not your Jesus. And you're here this morning, and you're just saying, I want Jesus. Now, I don't know what it is. I can see. I can see amazing grace. I can see once I was blind, but now I see. The Lord has spoken and my eyes have been opened and you want to believe. Turn to Christ. He has planned to receive you. Some of you, you're, you're, you're looking at your lives and you know like, I, I've always been open to religion and that's why I'm here. I've always been open to a Christian God, but I never realized how desperately I needed Christ. I never saw that I was spiritually blind. Now God's opening your eyes. Just turn to him and he will receive you. He will receive you. But for all of us who believe, the application is a constant reminder that our eyes are always open, have been open. But there are still times where we walk in blindness, we walk in darkness. Because Jesus doesn't do this. Heal the blind man, go wash. He washes. He goes, washes, so let's just say, that's not baptism, but, you know, he washes, and he stays here. He washes, I can see, he comes back, and Jesus finds him later, because he doesn't know where to go to, right? He hasn't seen Jesus. Jesus finds him, and he stays with Jesus. And as long as you're with the shepherd, he will guide you. We who are saved will fall into the darkness, even temporarily, and the shepherd has to come pick us up. We will fall into the, we will wander and trip and fall into a dark pit. We will wander as sheep and the wolves will come and the shepherd has to come and save us. But when we follow the shepherd, he leads us. It's not the blind leading the blind like the Pharisees. It is Christ, the light of the world leading the seeing, but even the seeing will stray away. He comes back and he sees Christ. But a deeper idea is Jesus found him blind, right? Because the disciples are walking along. Why was this man blind? Unlike the seeing, he couldn't see Jesus. Jesus found him blind. Then later Jesus finds him. I was the one. I was the one. You and I, beloved, we've never seen Jesus Christ. But when, when you go through trials, when you go through suffering, 
whether it's depression, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, Christ will find you. And he will say to you, I was the one. I am. Before Abraham was, I'm, I am the one who found you. And I am the one who will continue to walk with you. And I will take you home. And some of you, you will not understand it. If you're a parent and your child is sick, Down syndrome, and you don't understand, or you, or you have cancer and God doesn't heal you, doesn't heal your wife, and they pass away, and you don't understand, or you have great suffering, you get to heaven, and Jesus will be there, and Jesus will say, I am the one who found you. I found you, not in your perfect holiness, not in when you had it all together. I did not create you and give you value based on your functionality or worth in this world. My worth is not in what I own. My worth is not in what I achieve or accomplish. My worth is in what? That I've been found by Christ and I'm now found in Christ. I'm still being found in Christ. My worth is that I am found in Christ. And in Christ there is a fountain filled with blood flowing out from Emmanuel's veins. That blood makes me and you clean regardless of our disease, our disability, or our depression, or our demeanor, or whatever else you want to do that starts with a D. But the one thing that we overcome is spiritual death. And that's what Jesus does for me and you. And our prayer this morning is not only that Christ would find you, but after the fact that you would live your lives being found, having been found by Christ and being found in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you found us as we wandered in this world. You found us spiritually blind. You healed us spiritually. And then you came back to look for us, to remind us of who you are. And you do that every week with us, reminding us of who saved us. Lord, I pray that this week that we would live passionately for Jesus Christ, that we would follow our shepherd, and that for anyone who doesn't know you, that you would open their eyes this morning so that they can see that you are there. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.